Um, so with that, I will read our scripture reading, um, which today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, um, verses 7 through chapter 12, verse 8. Hear God's word. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and no one rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond trees blossom, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is God's word. A few years ago, I went to visit a friend of mine who is a pastor and who lives in a different city, and he was showing me around, and aside from showing me things about the city, he was showing me things about his life. And one of the things that struck me most was where he wrote his sermons. See, if he worked on his sermon at home, his kids would disturb him. And if he went to the office, then his coworkers or calls might disturb him. And what a lot of pastors do, they go to cafes, but he said that would be too distracting. So where he brought me was a very quiet, peaceful place that he spends several mornings a week. It was a cemetery. And he went there only because during the week, in the mornings, there's not many people there. So he was able to sit there and have quiet because he just needed quiet to think and to pray and to reflect. But he said over the years, looking out at tombstones actually helped grow him, helped mature him, helped remind him, not simply of the task of preaching, but of of the very heart of Christianity. And we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes since September, a hard book in many ways, although a great book in many ways. But one of the things that's hard about is it it, it confronts us with a reality that because we don't understand it, because it's terrifying and and confusing and mysterious, however it is any of us relates to it, uh, we tend to avoid it. And the topic, of course, is death. Um, And so some of us, we just put it off and try not to think about it. Some of us can't help by, by thinking about it. Uh, some of us, maybe we've reconciled with it, but, but Ecclesiastes puts it right front and center and says, if you want to be wise, you have to recognize that death is before all of us. That, that's a fact that we can't get around, and it casts a shadow on the whole of life. It doesn't give some positive spin or some simple answer. It, it, it leaves death mysterious. 
but it basically says, but, but if that's true, it, it really, it, it skews the way we view life. And so then how do we live well in light of that? And so Psalm 90, it's interesting, each Psalm is different. Psalm 90, uh, a Psalm about the, the hardness of life and calling for God uh, to maybe show favor to us in that word, teach us to number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom, to, to gain a heart of wisdom. By knowing our mortality, there's something about mortality that's very difficult and could be troubling and, and could ruin things for some of us. But, but the wise need to reckon with time and the fleeting nature of life. And as we're coming to the end of Ecclesiastes, this is not the last week. Next week will be the last week. But this is the last week hearing from this figure that we've called Koheleth, that our passage calls the preacher. Uh, this is the last week we're hearing from him. And next week, the conclusion of the book comes from another voice, another narrator. And so this is not necessarily a summary passage of everything, but he tells us to do three things. And the three things are not all that there is to say about the book, but they hit on key themes that, that if, you, if you're aware of them, it, it helps make sense of the whole book as you're reading them. And, and the basic point of this passage is life is fleeting. There's, there's youth in his words to the youth, but then there's this picture in chapter 12, some, some sort of imagery of aging and the difficulty of life as you get older. And it's a reminder to live because life is fleeting. That's part of biblical wisdom. And so he tells us to do three things in, in light of the fact that death is coming, life goes quickly, and the, the background problems that, that we resonate perhaps with, that the writer of this book resonates with is, we don't know all there is to know. The more we learn, the, realize we, the more we realize we don't know, and we can't control all things. No matter how skilled, able, uh, how, how hardworking we are, there are limits to what we know and what we could control, and that makes this life hard and confusing. But Ecclesiastes is good for those who are experiencing life in a way that's hard and confusing because it, it reminds us that the Bible knows our experience and yet still offers us the possibility for wisdom. So the three things today, for today that we're told to do, it's to rejoice, to remove, and to remember. So we're going to begin with rejoicing. Uh, one of the key themes or takeaways um, from the observations of this, of this teacher that we've sat under is that joy is possible. It's, it's, it's weird. If you read the book as a whole, you see it keep coming up. But if you read just a little bit at a time, uh, there's so many terrible things happening pastor after, passage after passage that when you get to these few verses where he talks about rejoicing, uh, it almost seems like they don't fit. And yet it keeps coming back up. And the thing for us to note is that, that a biblical view of the world, so this is broader than just the book of Ecclesiastes, but you take the Bible as a whole, and the world is created by God. And the world is fundamentally good. Um, so that's Genesis 1 and even Genesis 2, the very opening chapters of the Bible. But Genesis 3, there's a change. Some, there's an intrusion. Something comes in and evil enters the world, but it doesn't come in as something different from the outside as though now there's good and there's evil, these two different things. But there's still the world that's good, but now it's like a parasite has come in and taken over and it's making its way into everything and corrupting everything, breaking everything down. And yet there's this theological sense that the world is still good, but it's also now corrupted. And sometimes it's so corrupt that we can't see the good at all. It becomes utterly confusing, utterly overwhelming. Sometimes it's so good <laughs> that we celebrate and we, we're not bogged down by the corruption, but life has these ups and downs and it's mostly some kind of a mix. Um, and so in, in uh, the first verse that we heard read, chapter 11, verse seven, 
light is sweet and pleasant for the eye. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So we're to remember our creator. That's 12 verse one in, in this passage. Well, what is the first action recorded in the Bible of the creator? He says, let there be light. And it was, and it was good. And Ecclesiastes eleven seven, light is sweet. It's still sweet. It's still pleasant for the eyes. The goodness of light is still there, even if now the clouds block it, if there are periods of darkness. And so, so that goodness that's there is something that if we're wise, we recognize in the midst of this world that now evil has come and casts a shadow on everything. And sometimes so much so that, that it's hard to see any good. And yet the fight that we're meant to have is to stay the course on what is good. And, and that's part of wise living. Ecclesiastes confronts us with the fact that you can't control all things. There's injustice, discouragement, the feeling of randomness. But if you give yourself to what is good, if you take hold of it and you're grateful whenever it comes, that's wise living. This past week um, for kids in public schools in New York was, was a, a vacation week, winter break. Now, I don't know if anybody, if any Emmanuel families went anywhere. Uh, maybe families that are into outdoor sports like skiing may have gone for a ski trip or if you have a, have a cabin or something that you can go to. But, but normally this is a week that, that families travel this week again. I don't know if people traveled or not. Uh, but it's the kind of week where people would have said, you know, having a few days off, let's go, somebody, let's, let's go a little bit further away rather than taking a trip to the Bronx Zoo or something like that. Let's go to Boston. And so you have somebody, whoever plans the trip, thinking we're going to get in the car at eight in the morning and it's going to be wonderful. And you Google the, you know, the best, most affordable place to have lunch in, in Boston. And, and the, you, you imagine showing up and having this delicious meal and then going and seeing where people were massacred and where people threw tea in the party. And, and you know, so Boston's a great place to go if you want an uplifting vacation. So you have this imagination that, that you're going to get in the car and then this snowy week, it just keeps snowing and snowing. And so your, your, uh, your fantasy about driving it out at eight in the morning, you go down there and the snowplow has now plowed the snow. So there's, an, there's a, a, you know, we got one foot of snow or six inches or whatever, but now there's three feet of snow smashed against your car. So from eight to 830, you're shoveling out. And then from 8.30 to 8.45, you and whoever's traveling with you are trying to push your car over the remainder of what you're, you're trying not to bother shoveling out because it's a bit icy. And you finally get out and because it's still snowing, uh, what you planned on getting to Boston based on 55 miles an hour, now you're going 15 to 20 miles out an hour because the weather conditions are not good. And at two o'clock, when you should be there eating, you're in a car full of people who are hangry and their blood sugar is low, but their bad mood is high. And it's the kind of thing where you find yourself thinking, why bother? I should have stayed home. Like this in my free time is what I, what I did. But if you're there for a few days, you get there, you know, potentially things get better. You look back and you say, well, it was a miserable trip. I wish it went differently. I wish it wasn't snowing, but it was worth it. Um, some people would say it's not worth it. I'll just stay home. That's fine. But staying home, you don't have to deal with the hassle, but you, it's another day at home. So what do you do? Look, different circumstances in life, you do different things. This message is saying, don't always stay home. <laughs> um, sometimes stay home, maybe that's the wise thing to do. But sometimes just going out and living a good life is hard. Everything that you imagine comes against you. <laughs> Every, everything that you, you dreamed of happening doesn't go as you planned. Things are harder, discouraging, disappointing. You're not as good as it. Other people are not as kind to you. Things don't work as you'd want it to work. And so what we think is, therefore, don't bother doing anything just give up or live a miserable, angry life. Or 
What some people do, but Ecclesiastes would not recommend, is to say, you know what, if life is hard, why bother accomplishing anything? I'm just going to enjoy myself. But that's foolish. That If you're not pushing for something good, enjoying yourself is also fleeting. We get a vision instead through this whole book of a world that is surprising, but not always in good ways, hard to control, um, unjust and corrupt at times, but still has good in it. And the message for today, verse 9 of chapter 11, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And why is youth highlighted? Well, look, as you get older, the body breaks down, more discouragement. Uh, this week, my father called me two of his friends this week died of COVID. Uh, he's My father's nearly 80. That's his peer group. Um, Look, being young is not an automatic easy thing. It doesn't mean that everything goes wonderfully. But the idea is life doesn't necessarily get easier and better. But there's goodness throughout. So so the word to the young is rejoice if you can. Um, If your life is before you, take hold of what's good and seize it. When something good happens, enjoy it. And along the way, it could be hard and disappointing. But but don't get sidetracked and give up. Don't pursue what's evil. Don't have some superficial running after what's pleasurable. But learn what's good as God has made it, as the creator has made it, and give yourself to it and know it's going to be hard and disappointing, but, but, but keep going. So verse 8 of 11, it reminds us this book is sober. So verse 9, uh, rejoice. But verse 8, you know, remember that the days of darkness will be many. And verse 7 says light is sweet. There's a contrast here. Light is sweet. But there's darkness, and and those days will be many. And maybe for some people, they're more than others. We don't know. But the point is, life won't be easy. It won't be perfect. But God's goodness remains, and so it can be good. You can fight the good fight and take hold of something that, that gives you satisfaction and joy. And you may have to fight for it. You may have to work hard. You may have to push through discouragement. You may have to wait for it. But we're told, uh, particularly the young, (laughs) are encouraged, don't give up. And so I want to encourage those of you who are young today, and I won't define who's young. Maybe this applies to all of you. Uh, That's one of the things I took away from our children's sermon today. Um, But if you consider yourself young and youthful, uh, you know, sometimes older people, we do look back and, and, you know, we think of all of the potential and that young people have, and we forget that being young has its own unique challenges. And so, yes, uh, being young can be hard. It can be discouraging, especially if you don't feel potential, because others around you seem to have more potential than you have. You already feel like I'm losing the race. Um, that's one example. All kinds of ways that in your youth, you may feel this is hard. But what we're reminding is, look, there's going to be a lot of dark days. It may not get easier. It may. We don't. It's not. This is not a pessimistic book. It's a realistic book. Um, things may be harder, but right now, if you're young, don't waste your time um, waiting for some future payoff when there are good things now that you could have and enjoy. And so, are there hard things? Be wise. Face them. Try to solve your problems. Don't give up. Have energy. But find out what's good. Pursue it. And when you experience something good, whether it's great, a great victory you want to celebrate, or whether it's just small, (laughs) at this moment, I I feel good. Be thankful for it. Rejoice in it. But the lesson is not just for the young. I think there's a special application for the young. But verse 8 of chapter 11 says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
And yes, the days of darkness will be many, but, but it, it, from the wisdom perspective, you could have a young person full of health, energy, promise, and talent who is not holding what's good and is not joyful. And you can have somebody who's older and has a hard life and is filled with struggles, but they've learned to be thankful. You could have an old person with a hard life who's filled with joy and a young person filled with advantages who's not happy. That's this weird thing about life. Ecclesiastes wants to give us wisdom to say, look, everyone is going to face challenges, but death is going to come to us all rather than being overwhelmed by it. Remember your creator who gives you light and it's sweet. So taste it and enjoy it. Don't waste the life. Life is fleeting. And so rather than causing that to be a despair, um, be wise and take hold of what's good in it. So that's one of the things that we learn from this. So rejoice. That's actually a lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now remove. Here's, a, here's the second lesson of what he highlights. And now I'm using the language of verse 10, where he says, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. So in this world now of good and evil, that seems to be what Ecclesiastes is grappling with. It's a Genesis 3 world. That's the story of Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We now have the knowledge of good and evil, and the knowledge of evil just makes everything hard. One of the things we do is we remember that the course has not changed. God gave us, um, you know, he set an agenda for humanity, have relationships, work, do good things. There's an aesthetic beauty uh, to the Garden of Eden, and it looked beautiful. Things tasted good. All of that still can be part of life, but everything is harder now. Now there's sweat, there's tears, uh, there's pain. That's, that's part of Genesis 3. But what we're told is that, that part of the, the task of, of the human being now is to, to try to put away what is evil. We've welcomed it into our lives and into our world, and now we need to put it down and its effects and still pursue what's good. And Ecclesiastes is very sober. This is not some optimistic book that says you can have this great perfect life. It's saying, look, it's gonna be hard. We, we experience a curse, <laughs> but there's goodness. And so, so strive for the goodness, rejoice when you can, but, but remove vexation. And, and this fits with the kinds of things Jesus says, also not some happy clappy optimist, but Jesus comes uh, a man of sorrows and yet he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, so remember the key task, go for that. And then, yes, some of you struggle with anxiety. You don't have to feel guilty about it. And, and, and it sounds so simplistic when we apply that verse. Well, Jesus says, don't worry. Jesus is not simplistic, knows that you don't just snap your fingers and do away with it. But in the struggle of life, don't let anxiety set your agenda. That should not be your dominant experience, but seeking first the kingdom is. Seek what's good and therefore re remove the anxiety. It may take work, but, but seek to remove that vexation, your anger, your frustration. So Jesus says, you know, uh, settle your accounts quickly with somebody. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, pray for your forgiveness, but pray that you'd forgive others. Because if you allow your frustration, your anger to take root in your heart, life is quick. And, you know, a grudge is so hard to let go of because we feel it's unjust to let go of it. <laughs> but they, there's this phrase about, you know, ha, you know seeking vengeance and having a, a grudge is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, time passes so quickly that if, if your whole existence is waiting for that moment when the person who hurt you can suffer, the moment may come, but it may never come. But your moment will come, the moment of death. And did you spend 10 years holding on to that? This is not saying... Ecclesiastes of all books is not saying take injustice lightly. It's not saying don't spend some of your energies fighting 
the hard work of advocating for yourself and sometimes advocating for justice, that's not the lesson. But the lesson is be really careful if you're justifying bitterness in your life and holding on to it because life is too quick to spend it in bitterness. And that's the kind of lesson, remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body. Now, um, I, I, I rarely um, prefer different translations. I think the translation we use is pretty good. This is the English standard version. Most modern translations agree with this. Literally in the Hebrew, instead of put away pain from your body, it says put away evil from your flesh. So actually the King James version, I think translates it that way. It's not that that's a better translation because in the context where, where the immediate context is about youth and aging, um, put away pain from your body, maybe that really is the best way to translate it. I'm not arguing with that. But, but noting the language of put away evil from your body, where, where there's this contrast, light is good, then there's darkness and evil. Uh, I think this reflection that I'm, I'm trying to say, if you have Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve, in the back of your mind as you read Ecclesiastes, it makes sense of a lot of things. Remember the lessons that chapter, not remember, we haven't gotten there yet, but if you've read Ecclesiastes, next week's passage, chapter 12, the summary is, fear God, keep his commandments, and remember, everything comes into judgment whether good or evil. Those are the last words of Ecclesiastes, good or evil, tov and ra. They're common words in Hebrew. So just because this is ra, put away ra, bad, evil from your body, doesn't mean that that's the best translation. But I do think removing vexation from your heart and taking evil away from your flesh, your, your body, certainly if, if, if Ecclesiastes didn't mention this, a New Testament reading would say that is part of the the biblical task of Christianity is to take hold of what's good and, and to, to put off that old life where we're gripped by evil and even our evil desires. And so in, in Ecclesiastes 11.9, where it says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, you know, this is assuming, or I think it's assuming he's speaking to people with a certain measure of wisdom. Know what's good and desire it. And when you know what's good as God defines it, Go after it. When your heart is set on that, give your heart fully to it. Rejoice, pursue it. Now, of course, if your heart is set on what God says is evil and destructive, you know, don't, don't pursue what's in your heart. Recognize your heart's leading you astray. And so actually remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, evil from your flesh. Don't pursue that. But when you get a vision, a wise vision of the goodness of your creator and the blessing that he had promised and the mandate for your life, then you want to put away everything that's pulling you away from that. And so put away what is harmful. Um, and then so it not only says, uh, verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart to side of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. So that's also part of Ecclesiastes. Look, there's lots of things you could do in life. Find something good to do and do it. It doesn't need to be what your parents uh, said you should do. It doesn't need to be what you thought you should do five years ago. It doesn't need to be what the world values. Find out what God values. Pursue it eagerly. Be prepared for surprises and changes and, and resist the influence to, to be corrupt about it. But one of the reasons that we need to be wise is because at the end of the day, God is still a judge. And, and that's what's interesting about Ecclesiastes. He says, because judgment doesn't come right away, people think that evil is the thing to do. And he himself gets caught up in this. I don't understand. I thought if you lived a good life, you'd be rewarded. And if you live a terrible life, you'd, you'll, you'd suffer. 
And, and he's, he's saying in this world, sometimes that's how things appear. But at the end of the day, he keeps coming back to, but there is accountability. There's no secret thing. And so, so whether or not he thinks that everyone will get justice, that the, the, the people who did evil will, will be punished and the people who do good would be rewarded, that's not necessarily the message of this particular book. But he is saying, if you're wise and you think I could keep this hidden thing in my heart, this corrupt desire, well, know that wisdom brings its own reward. And so if you're not pursuing what's good, but you're pretending to be good and pursuing what's evil, know that that's going to come out. And so um, remove it. <laughs> Whether or not there's, a, there's life after death, as, as Christians often conceive of things, Ecclesiastes is saying life is fleeting, even if death is all there is. If you allow vexation to remain in your heart and have this fake good life, it's not a wise life. There's no real giving thanks. That's one of the lessons that we get from this person. So um, rejoice. It's the first thing. Remove. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing I want to talk about. Remember. And so in light of that, this good and evil, take hold of what's good, pursue it, rejoice when you can, remove what's problematic because there is judgment. There is accountability. You, you really need to have this holistic existence. And, and key to that is remembering. So that's the lesson of, of chapter 12, verse one. And this really is a key lesson of the book. Remember also your creator. That's chapter 12. But there's an application here. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And so this is a word to the young, because that's a time where you think if I'm filled with potential, maybe I don't need God now. I'll need him <laughs> when I'm older. If the miserable days are coming, well, then I'll have to call on God for healing. But right now, let me use my energies elsewhere and not get bogged down with religious duties. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now that's not simply aging. That could be disaster. But what it's saying is life is fleeting. You, you have today and you don't know what tomorrow brings. Don't waste your time worrying about tomorrow, but don't waste your day not pursuing what's good. And if you want to pursue what's good, it's not just a matter of doing what your heart desires, but it's a matter of remembering your creator because your creator tells you what's good. He gives you what's good. And rejoicing in Ecclesiastes is a gift from the creator. It's this mysterious thing that he doesn't seem to understand. How do people get joy in this crazy, unpredictable world? And yet he observes it. He says, I see people have it. It must be a gift from the creator because life itself doesn't seem to, all of our hard work and toil doesn't seem to produce it. There's something about remembering your creator that makes it possible. When I was a teenager, I had a good friend and, um, you know, we, we would talk a lot about things in life. And I became a Christian in my early 20s. So I would talk to him about Christianity. And, and over a couple of, couple of years of talking with him, uh, one thing that I remember, now this was a while ago, but I, but I remember a point where, where he said, yes, Christianity sounds good. There's a lot that's commendable. But frankly, Scott, um, I want to enjoy my youth. You know, he was maybe 23, 24. I, I'm young. I want to enjoy my life. And, and what you're saying totally makes sense. And, and I suspect when I get older, this is the kind of thing that will be valuable to me. But for now, I don't want to have to, to give up what's enjoyable. And I, and I think maybe he understood it in a way that a lot of people do, which is, you know, God wants you to, to have a sacrificial life so he'll reward you. And if you pursue what you enjoy, uh, he'll, he'll punish you. And the book of Ecclesiastes would say two things to this person. One is, 
It's a bad plan. If, if you're banking on being rewarded by God in the afterlife and waiting 20 years to honor God, it's a bad plan because you have no idea what this afternoon will bring you. So if that's your plan, that's foolish. But the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't even open the possibility for us to think about the afterlife. It's saying, look, we know nothing beyond death. And yet, so then why remember your creator in your youth? And see, my friend was saying, see, see remembering my creator means I'm not going to be able to follow my heart. I'm not going to give what brings joy. So I will, I will turn to God when, when I need the kinds of things that God offers. And Ecclesiastes would say that's a complete misunderstanding of life. God is not just useful for facing death, but God is the source of all that's good. And so if you want to enjoy your youth, don't wait for God in the future, but, but take hold of what's good now because goodness is of God. Anything that's good is made by God, given by God, found in him. So learn what's good and pursue it. And that's actually the way to enjoy your youth and to gain the kind of wisdom in your youth. So when the evil days come, you're prepared to weather them wisely so that you could even rejoice in things that happen in the process of those days coming. And so, so it's a whole different perspective. Um, so, so there's a, a special encouragement for the young, but we can gain wisdom at any time. But sometimes we get older, we get set in our ways, we're less willing to listen. You know, it's those high school, college years where people are open to changing their minds, but you could be 50, you could be 80, you could be 90. If you're willing to listen, uh, Koheleth, the Bible wouldn't say it's too late, would say, gain wisdom, there's so much unlearning we have to do to really be convinced of God's goodness. And so the advantage in the youth is if you, if you mold this into your life when you grow up, then it won't be simply that God's good because you call out for healing and he heals you, but, but you see the greater breadth of the goodness of God, and that readies you better for the hardness of life. And so, so chap, chapter 12, verses 2 through 8 there's this poem, and I wish we had the time to really go through the details of it, and we just don't. But it's really this great literary moment in the Bible of this picture of the contrast to youth. Now, what it's a picture of, uh, that gets debated a bit. The most popular interpretation of this is it's an allegory for aging. So you have the, you know, the grinders cease because they're few, just like, you know, what are the grinders in the body? Your, your teeth, you grind up your food and you get older and your teeth fall out. And so now chewing and eating what was once pleasurable is no longer there. The, the, the windows grow dim, your eyes that you see out of, now you'll lose your eyesight. And so the aesthetic beauty you can't enjoy. And so, so there's this withering away of life. Some people think that that's really what, what chapter 12 is about, very possibly. But some notice, but it, not everything corresponds to an individual. Some people say, actually, this is about a community that's experienced death. So it's, it's like there's a, there's a small town where somebody dies. And so, so as the mourners are proceeding through the streets, those who are grinding at the mill stop so they can go stop their productivity, stop their work so they can go and be part of the sorrow as they confront the reality of death in this world. That I think is possible as well. And, and here's, a, here's a last perspective on, on, on interpreting this. Uh, some people think that this is actually cosmic. That is not an individual, nor is it a community, but the picture is of this world that corruption has come into. Because it's not just grinders and it's not just windows and it's not just the golden bowl, but it's the sun. It's the light that God made uh, also dying because all of creation itself is groaning, is is under this corruption where everything uh, and its goodness is, is um, being assaulted. And so 
um, it ends, the last verses of, of chapter 12 that were printed there, seven and eight, um, enjoy your youth before these hard days come, whether they're cataclysmic day of the Lord, apocalyptic, whether it's you facing illness, whether it's uh, a community experiencing death before those days come. And then it says in verses seven and eight, before the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, hevel, the Hebrew word, says the preacher. All is vanity. And there's a sense in which he's really looking at the end of life. And, and again, I think Genesis 3 as a hinge between Genesis 2 to 4. Genesis 2, um, God takes humanity, Adam, from the dust, and he breathes life into him. And he, and he gives him relationship and blessing and fruit and instruction. And then in Genesis 3, they have a conversation where Adam and Eve, they don't remember God. Now, what does it mean that they don't remember him? Did they forget God's existence? Curiously, they're having a conversation about God. They didn't forget that God exists because the conversation is, did God actually say you shouldn't do this? What is God telling you? They didn't remember God's existence. They didn't, uh, they didn't forget God's existence. What they forgot was the whole context of their life with God, that God gave them life on loan and for them to steward. God gave them food that's good and a task of having more of it. God gave them relationships so they wouldn't be alone. They didn't remember all of that as they looked at the one thing God said, don't do it because in the day you do, you will surely die. They didn't remember that God also knows things that they don't know. Did they forget God's existence? No, but they forgot the whole picture of God and his goodness. And having forgotten it, <laughs> They entered into a world where now they know evil. What's it like not to really remember the goodness of God, to not have it fully there, uh, but to remember our pains and our aches and our sorrows and our regrets? That's the picture that Ecclesiastes is grappling with of this world where there's these echoes of goodness and God gives us his spirit to live according to, but in these corrupt bodies. And then it tells us what, what was announced in Genesis 3. Your body came from the dust, and to dust it will return. It's kind of like a teacher who says, today's an exciting day. We're going to have an art project. I'm giving out these scissors. This is the first time you're using these scissors. Um, we're going to do new things. This will be wonderful, but here's some careful instructions. And then one kid is sneaking off to the coat rack to cut off the sleeve of somebody's jacket, and another kid is cutting off the hair of the kid who sits in front of them, and another kid goes to the library and is cutting pages out of the book. And then the teacher says, forget it. I'm taking the scissors back. This is not what you're meant to do. That's Genesis 3. I, I offered you everything, the fullness of life, and this is what you've done with the life I've given you. The spirit that I gave to you is going to return to me, and your bodies are going to go back to the dust. Now, this was a week that many churches, uh, those in the tradition that celebrate Ash Wednesday, they take the, the palm branches from the previous year's Palm Sunday, and they burn them. And they put ashes in the head. You say different things, but one of them is you are dust and to dust you will return. It's a way of saying, let's have a season of discipline before Easter when we remember the joy of the resurrection, that we are a people who live in a corrupt world and we experience corruption in our hearts, but in our very bodies, the whole of our existence, we too are subject to the curse of Adam, to return to the dust. The spirit will not be in us forever, but it will return to the one who gave it. And it's that perspective of, of Adam and his folly that plays itself out historically. And you read the book of Ecclesiastes, a lot of people think it was written by Solomon the king. So a lot of people will, will, will say this is what Solomon was saying. I haven't been saying that because I don't think Solomon wrote it because nowhere in the book does he say 
uh, does it say the book was written by Solomon? It seems like it was written by somebody else, but whoever wrote it certainly wants us to think he's Solomon. And so, so in the opening chapters, he doesn't say, I'm Solomon. He says, I was king over Jerusalem. And there was no one wiser. There was no one more wealthy. There was no one who had better life than I had. And if you're a Bible reader, you think, this sounds like Solomon. And the story of Solomon is he becomes a king when he's young, as his father gets old and dies. And, and when the Bible talked about kingship, it said, don't look at the nations who build armies and who build palaces and who have harems and who have wealth and power and prestige and they want to extend their kingdoms. Don't look at them. That's what Moses said. Don't look at them as a model. Young Solomon, what does he ask for in prayer? He says, Lord, give me wisdom that I would lead well. And that's right. That's wisdom that you would lead well. So God says, because you didn't ask for many days, because you didn't ask for prosperity, because you have wisdom, now you're worthy of it. So I will give you wisdom plus these things. But then you read the story of Solomon in First Kings, and it's about his wisdom and great decisions and admiration in this whole life. But the last chapter on wisdom, First Kings 11, it says, but in his old age, he did not remember God. But over the course of his years, he he married many wives and he, he built a harem. He was warned not to do that. And, and he started to look to the, to the gods of the, the nations that these wives came from. And he didn't remember his creator. And then it says God saw this. And, and because of that, uh, the kingdom would be taken from him. And even in his own time, enemies would come up to afflict him. And it's almost as if the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom we get coming from Solomon is to look back and say, here's what you could learn from me. Um, I was wise when I was younger and it brought such goodness of life, but, but I didn't remember my creator. And I look back and, and here's what I wanna tell you. I, I didn't remember my creator and my life was unnecessarily hard and I was foolish and I didn't take the wisdom he had given me and I suffered for it. And the interesting thing, these passages about joy in Ecclesiastes, people can't make sense of them. How do these lessons about joy fit in with all of his saying, I'm overwhelmed and everything's vanity and everything's meaningless? The interesting thing is the writer that we're reading doesn't actually tell us he experienced the joy. What he tells us from the very beginning is I had wealth and it was vanity and I had power and it was vanity. And I tried living different kinds of lives and I had the best of everything and nothing ever satisfied me. He doesn't say, but then I found joy, and that's my recommendation. He says, but I looked at the world, and I found everything I pursued left me with emptiness. But here's what I observed. There were people who didn't have any of these things, but they had joy. And so he's commending joy, not as a personal story. I have joy, be like me. But I had everything, and everything feels like vanity. But I have wisdom, and as I looked and observed the world, I saw there are people some of them were rich, some of them are poor. Some of them were wise, some of them were foolish. Some of them were talented, some of them weren't. But when they believed in the creator and they received good from him, they had joy. And so the lesson is in your youth, remember your creator. That's how you're going to live wisely. The lesson in the sense is, well, be wise like Solomon, be prosperous like Solomon. But at the end of the days, don't, don't make your life like Solomon's because he's not our example. We get a, one greater than Solomon in the Bible, and that, of course, is Jesus, who doesn't have a palace, who doesn't have wealth, who doesn't have power, who didn't take any wives. And instead, he remembered his creator. <laughs> and it didn't lead to this wonderful, easy, joyful life. But it led to his 
ending wisely. Unlike Solomon, who had everything, and he ends remembered that the kingdom was taken from him. Jesus ends his life having faced the challenges of this world and being told that he's the only one who will build the true kingdom of God, the true temple, the true house of God. What we find, there's a description in Luke 23 uh, of Jesus being crucified. And I'm going to read verses 44 to 46. It says, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That description in verse 45, it, it sounds like you could pull it out of Ecclesiastes 12. I'm not saying it should. It's not saying that it belongs there. But one day, the, the day is going to come, not simply that the sun doesn't shine, but that the sun's light will fail. And the description of Jesus Christ on the cross was not simply that the sun went behind the clouds, but that the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In the imagery of chapter 12, the golden bowl falls down, the silver cord is cut. It's almost like you could say that the curtain was cut, torn in two. Uh, we shouldn't conflate those too much, but there's this picture of this coming apart, the, the ending of creation as we know it. And then verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And I think if we were there, we would want to have the next verse be Hevel. Hevel, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. The righteous one comes and he lives this life and then he faces this apocalyptic crisis where the, the cosmos fails on this great and terrible day. But instead of saying, my spirit will return to you because I'm going to the dust, he remembers his father and he says, I commit my spirit to you. And then he breathes his last. And one of the things I've been saying is this word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, hevel. Uh, it's like a vapor. It's like that expiration, whereas Genesis 2 is an inspiration, breath going in. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. Abel's name is Hevel. Uh, the, one who the first one to breathe is last. That death, that judgment, that consequence for forgetting our creator leaves us with the breath taken out of us, leaves us facing a world with evil where we don't see good. But Jesus leaves us by leaving his spirit by saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And what we're told is something radically changed, that now the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us. So the promise of Christianity is that Jesus goes before us bearing the curse of Adam. He's the one who suffers that death that we should have died. He's the one who faces misery so that the blessing of God could be poured out so that life could be restored so that he could once again recreate, make all things new, take humanity from the dust and breathe life in. So the spirit that we had one day, the day will come where the body goes to the dust and the spirit returns to our creator. But we're told now there's a new spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes and resides in our hearts. And now when the spirit returns, we return with the spirit. There's not the separation of the body and death that Koheleth only imagined, but there's the, the resurrection of the dead. So now the spirit that puts, is put in us is the spirit we're to live a, a, along, which is why, a, along with, which is why we put away vexation. We put away evil from our bodies. We don't live according to the flesh, but we live by the spirit. We learn what's good and we take hold of it because that's fundamentally what we are on this side of the grave and on the other side. Psalm 103 a wonderful psalm about the forgiveness of sins. As far as the east is from, our, from the west so far, will he remove our sins from us? It says, God remembers our frame, that we are dust. 
And that's the point of Christianity. Adam, humanity, and his descendants, we keep forgetting our creator. We don't forget that he exists. We don't forget that he's real. But we'll live without the memory of the goodness of the creator and our trust in him. But what we're told is our creator remembers us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. And he remembers that he formed us from the dust and breathed life into us. And that good plan has not changed because of corruption. What God intended from the beginning, God will complete, even if now the task is so hard that it requires the suffering and humiliating death of his own son. What we're told is that's how important it is to remember the goodness of God, to hold to it, to not get overwhelmed by evil, to not get distracted, to not get discouraged, to not believe the lie that death is all there is, but to remember that life is a gift given to you by your creator. And forgiveness is now a gift that comes to us through his own engaging in the curse of this world, bearing it for us. And what we can walk away from Ecclesiastes is rejoice. <laughs> rejoice so long as you have a day to rejoice. <clears throat> remove vexation, remove pain from your body, remove evil from your heart, but remember your creator. <clears throat> so here, here's, here's four quick takeaways, the three of them and plus one extra. One, life is fleeting. You can have joy. So find out what's good as God defines it and, and align your life with it. And look, there's going to be disappointment, confusion, injustice, surprises, not all of them good, but there will be victories. There will be blessing. There will be surprises that are wonderful. So when they happen, give thanks. Remember the nature of your creator who gives them to you and hold them. And when you face challenges, remember your creator, hold to what's good and, and be patient. So the second lesson, remember judgment, everything will come into judgment. Don't allow your bitterness, your lustful thoughts, your greed, these things to remain in your heart to think that a wisely lived life, somehow you can still build a good life for yourself. Jesus died in order to cleanse us from these things, to remove them from us. And we're told now we could live by that spirit, an eternal spirit that is given to us as a gift. We could be made new. Be patient with yourself. This doesn't mean in the next two years, you'll be a perfect human being, but it means today you need to fight the good fight. And so remember, you will be judged for everything you do. So today there is good, hold to it. And there is temptation and there's struggle and suffering. Put it aside. Don't give it any influence in your life. Here's a third thing. Remember your creator. Not just that God exists, but remember the one who gives life, the one who gives light, the one who has redeemed you. And as you face surprises and difficulties, it's not going to be, it's, it's this, that's what, I mean, you think of how trauma disorients someone that, that now my whole reality no longer makes sense as it, as it once did. That happens theologically. I can't remember how God is good and generous and kind, but what we're told is in your youth and all of your days, remember your creator. And so you need to rebuild that, hold on to that framework so that when life and, and suffering comes, it doesn't cause utter confusion but fight to hold on to that memory of God who made all things good and invites you to participate in it and will raise you up. And here's the last thing. Remember, there is a, an eternal spirit given to you. There's the breath in our lungs that will be 70 or 80 years at the most. That's Psalm 90. But there's a Holy Spirit that God has put in you, an eternal spirit given as a gift accomplished by Jesus Christ. And as your outer body withers away, your youth can be renewed like the eagles, that even as we age and even as the world goes through dark periods, God's goodness will be there somewhere. So look for it, pursue it, take hold of it, and know that the conclusion of the Bible is not vanity of vanities. It's uh, glory of God. And if you tie yourself to that, 
then we could learn from Kohelet, from Solomon. He made a lot of mistakes. He's learned wisdom is better than folly, but he tells us, I've seen people rejoice and it's a gift from God. God offers you that gift. Turn to God, no matter what's kept you from turning in the past, remember your creator, take hold of him. Don't change the course of your life, but find out what God wants you to do and do it with all your might. Let me pray for us. Our father, um, these words are remind us that this world is complicated and we can't take it all in. And therefore we make foolish decisions. We pursue what we think is good. That's not. And we miss out on all the good that's there. Lord, thank you that your goodness comes to us through Jesus Christ, who bears the curse for us and offers us forgiveness and new life, the promise of new life and renewal. May everyone here um, experience the power of that spirit, not to live according to our willpower or some philosophy or some ideology, but to live by the spirit that's given as a gift by you alone. Lord, we long for it to renew our hearts, to, to shine light into whatever we're experiencing, to see your good, so that we would take hold of that good and rejoice in it and have strength to put aside every vexation, every pain, every evil. And Lord, forgive us where we're losing that fight, but strengthen us this week that in it we would see that by the power of your spirit, uh, we don't have to accept life as vanity, but we could accept your goodness so long as you still have patience and grace to give it to us. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.